I'm Guy Kawasaki, and this is Remarkable People. This episode's remarkable guest is Dave Weiner. Dave is a programmer, entrepreneur, writer, and to some, a gadfly. The word gadfly, by the way, means, quote, an annoying person, especially one who provokes others into action by criticism. That's Dave, all right. And I mean that in a positive way. When we first met, I was a software evangelist for the Macintosh division of Apple. He was the CEO of a software company called Living Video Text. My job was to convince people like him to create Macintosh versions of their products. He delivered. The first version of his product was Think Tank. I loved how it enabled you to think, plan, and communicate in outline format. It enabled people to take an outline and easily display it as a presentation with borders and bullet items. In addition to making outlining a mainstream product, they've made great contributions, if not invented, technologies such as blogging, RSS, and podcasting. As Dave explains, technology is not created in a discrete event, so it's difficult to identify the exact inventor. But there is no doubt that Dave's work has touched the lives of hundreds of millions of people. In recognition of his contributions, InfoWorld named him as one of the top 10 technology innovators in 2002. Dave was a resident fellow at Harvard Law School's Berkman Center for Internet and Society and a visiting scholar at the New York University Arthur L. Carter Journalism Institute. Dave has a BA in math from the University of Tulane and an MS in computer science from the University of Wisconsin-Madison. This episode of Remarkable People is brought to you by Remarkable, the paper tablet company. Yes, you got that right. Remarkable is sponsored by Remarkable. I have version 2 in my hot little hands and it's so good. A very impressive upgrade. Here's how I use it. 1. Taking notes while I'm interviewing a podcast guest. 2. Taking notes while being brief about speaking gigs. 3. Drafting the structure of keynote speeches. 4. Storing manuals for the gizmos that I buy. 5. Roughing out drawings for things like surfboards, surfboard sheds, and office layouts. 6. Wrapping my head around complex ideas with diagrams and flowcharts. This is a remarkably well thought out product. It doesn't try to be all things to all people, but it takes notes better than anything I've used. Check out the recent reviews of the latest version. More than any other episode, this is a conversation, as opposed to an interview, between two old friends who have not talked or seen each other for years. I hope you enjoy it. I'm Guy Kawasaki. This is Remarkable People, and now, here's the remarkable Dave Weiner. I've been thinking about this conversation. We could spend months talking about what we learned. How you know, Apple did some things very right, yeah, but they also did a lot of things very wrong. And they live with the consequences, and we live with the consequences. So, okay, that's a good start. So, what has Apple done right and what has Apple done wrong? So what Apple did wrong, let's start with that. <laughs> That's always much more interesting okay. than what they did right. What they did wrong was they kept their networking very private. They did The thing they did right was with, remember the Macintosh office? I think it was 85 when they came out with a Mac. Every Mac had networking. What an incredible idea that was. And it was cheap. It was easy to set up. Uh, you know, it was really good networking. And so consequently, there was your 
basic foundation for what could have been the internet, except they made the software impossibly difficult to write. I think, honestly, in order to be able to make networking software that ran on that network, you needed to have permission from Steve Jobs or Gershwin Sidhu. Yeah, Sidhu, pretty much. You know how Inside Mac had all these big, thick chapters, right? There was a chapter in there called, I guess, the Apple Talk Manager. And I must have spent a full year trying to get software to run against that thing. And somehow that was the one toolkit I could not get my arms around. So the f first thing we did when I joined up with Symantec was we tried to buy everything that we could get our hands on that was actually doing that networking. And we got Think Technologies. We were able to buy them. But then somehow they, Sidhu must have liked them. That was my guess. <laughs> so he gave him a little floppy disk on the side and said, here, because I like you, you can write software here. So, but if they okay. had done that guy, if they had made it easy, there would be no web. I don't think there would be a web. I think it would all be on the Macintosh. What? Say that again? Yeah, seriously. I don't think there would have been a web. I don't think there would have been a need for one. The web wouldn't have solved a problem that anybody had. Because what, did the, what the web solved was it made it easy to write software that runs on a global network. And that was there in, in 94. That was when I had my come to Jesus moment. I was lost in 94. I mean, I had been completely pushed out of the software industry and I was looking for something to do and, uh, and somehow tripped over. I had a friend who was saying, you need to check out this web thing. You need to check that out. And when I finally did do it uh, and I had the time to do it, I was completely blown away with having spent all that time trying to get networking to work on the Mac network. The experience of getting something to work on the web, it was, I don't know, 10 minutes. <laughs> yeah. It's like, I can't believe this thing works, but look, it's working. Yeah. And uh, that was the thing. Nobody tried to make that hard. Whereas in the corporate world, not just Apple, but Microsoft and IBM and Borland and Net, what was the name of that company? They were in Utah. Novell. It was Novell. Novell, yeah. Novell, I remember them. Yep. They were all heavily invested in making it very exclusive, being able to develop for that thing. I mean, that's always a mistake. You try to keep it to yourself, sooner or later, some jerk working in Switzerland is going to invent the thing that makes it easy. And, you know, and that was what happened there. Had Apple decided to make it easy, the install base would have been enormous. And here's the tragedy of it. We had to give up the GUI. We went from having all this great user interface standards to the web, which had no user interface standards. And so we're still in a complete mess there. Uh, the software that we use on the web is grossly inadequate compared to the software we were using in 94 you know, on mm -hmm. the Mac. Can you step me through the process, you know, a, a quick summation, the gospel according to Dave of the development of outlines or outlining, RSS, and podcasting. Right now, outlining is experiencing a resurgence. It's really something. There's a whole people in their 20s. You know, I'm in my 60s, right? As you are probably yes. too, right? Um, and so I'm watching them. They're just getting started. And there's this incredible enthusiasm. The users, guy, they sound just like we sounded. They don't know, <laughs> really don't know... I don't like this sounds arrogant. It isn't really. I mean, it's, I'm reveling in it. And so that's 
all very interesting. Maybe we should come back to that in a year or so, because I think this is really going to be very interesting. Outlining was very separate. It was the first thing that I worked on. And I got this idea from a friend of mine at, in, when I was in grad school at the University of Wisconsin. He told me about um, editors for Lisp, which is a programming language, that understood the structure of the program. And Lisp is a very simple structure. The guy who wrote it, who designed both the, who designed the programming language, also created an editor for it. I think that's what people loved about Lisp is that it, its simplicity and the fact that it under its editor understood the structure of the program. And I was off writing in C. And C, another, a wonderful language, but the editors, that was completely up to you. And none of them understood structure. So I said, oh, well, why don't I just do a program editor for C that understands structure? And I did that. And then I showed it to some of my friends who were English majors. And they said they wanted, one of them said he wanted to use it. I said, you can't use it. This is for programmers. <laughs> but yep. there's the idea, right? So then that bothers me. I go, why couldn't I make it so that he can use it? And uh, that led me to, let's take the programming language out of it. Let's see what it's like without the programming language in it. And it was nice. It was really nice. And most people don't understand outliners. It's a fact. You show it. It's like blogging was... You have to include blogging in there, too, by the way. Blogging okay. came before both RSS and podcasting, and it's a precedent. You have to have that before you have either of the other two. Okay. But most people aren't bloggers. When I, so when I, how did I come up with blogging? I was driving in my car to San Francisco on Highway 280, and it struck me that I could uh, publish my ideas through this thing that I had just discovered, the web, right? And uh, being a software developer, my first impulse was, what can I do with this, right? I mean, now I've just discovered it. I go back to all the things that I wanted to do on the Mac, but couldn't do because I never got the networking together. Can you see that, like, the outliners we were doing in the Mac, they begged to be networked. I mean, that's the way I looked at it. It's th this thing isn't really going to happen until we can network these things. <laughs> So I started with uh, an announcement of a friend's press conference, and I pushed it out over the web and over email. And then I had been going around to various different companies, trying to tell them what they should do. And of course, they didn't listen. Nobody, they, you know, they pat me on the head. At that time, I was kind of well known in the tech industry, but not known for anything that anybody respected in particular kind of a gadfly. I don't know. How, you never really know how other people see you, right? But it, it wasn't a whole lot of respect in there. And so they blew me off everywhere. So I said, well, I'm going to so I'll just publish all the letters that I wrote to them. And let's see what happens. So I had a few of those. And uh, the response was unbelievable. It was just amazing. Push these things out. And all of a sudden, and this was in a vacuum guy, nobody else was doing this, you know, and It was in the tech industry, so they all had email. Most of them weren't using the web yet, but they all had email. And uh, and all of a sudden, they start getting back responses from people, famous people. And so I got around, to, and then I realized that all these great plans, what was it, OpenDoc and Taligent, remember Taligent? Oh these were God. all contemporaries. These were all like political things that the tech industry had put together as ways of dumping projects that they didn't want to have on their balance sheet. They all created these 
complicated. The, the manual for OpenDoc was a bookshelf, and none of them had. They were just like, here's the Novell section, here's the Borland section, here's the Apple. The Apple. None of this shit worked together. You know, I'm not sure. Am I allowed to say that? Why not? <laughs> okay. Well, you had the guy on who was saying uh, how to do something when you don't give a F. That was so. If you right. Mark that, Manson. I get, yes. If you yeah. can do that, I guess I could say that. So then I, then I figured, okay, well, this stuff's going to work. Because now we've got the networking, it really does work. And look, it's, I'm proving the concept. I'm, I'm pushing these ideas out. People are reading them. They're responding. And I'm, by the way, pushing out their ideas over the network, editing them and sending them back out to everybody. So I wrote a piece called Bill Gates versus the Internet. And Bill Gates responded. And I sent that out. And this was... You know, obviously, Bill Gates is a very powerful person still to this day, but this was kind of at his peak power in the tech industry. I mean, he had just sort of completed his domination of the world. Windows was everything. He, and all of a sudden, here's this web thing. And, and I got the story guy before anybody else did that, that really they had no future without the web. And it was a very radical idea at the moment. And Bill Gates writes me this very Bill Gates email. It's like full of the kind of, I mean, you know, kind of, it's whiny. It was, it was sort of like, and weedily and argumentative. And I thought, this is perfect. <laughs> so I, I just ran it back out. And I think that made a lot of people sit down and go, whoa, what just happened here? I once got Spindler, Michael Spindler, who was the CEO of Apple for a while, was quoted in the San Jose Mercury saying, you've been talking to that whiner guy, haven't you? <laughs> I go, yeah, yeah, they probably have. <laughs> I love that. It was the best. It didn't get every day something new. But then there was that moment. This is like what you were talking about with how you are with podcasting. There was that moment when you hit the send button on these things and you just don't know what kind of 10 ton weight is going to come down on your head for what you just did. And there's nobody to blame. There's nobody who can share the blame. It's just you. So there's that. That's how blogging got started. And then it was a software thing, really, because the whole thing was to try to figure out how to make this accessible so that real people could do that, what I was doing, because the tools were still very technical. And so this was sort of a puzzle like from a software development standpoint, user interface design, all of that. So how do you make it so this stuff is understandable, doable, and we pretty much got there in 1999. So this is like 94 to 99. And there was this piece I wrote called Edit This Page. What we were doing was, I had a company at this time, User Land Software. And um, what we were doing is we were hacking at the process of editing a news site, is what we called them at the time. And literally wrote out the steps you have to take to publish something or to make a change and just trying to take steps out. Taking one step out, that was a big victory. And then there was this moment I realized that the big problem, I don't know if this gets too technical, but the big problem was that there were two views of the data. There was the view that the reader sees, and then there is the view that the person editing it sees. And the thing that would really make this thing simple was if you could make it one view, just one way of looking at it. And that meant putting an edit this page button on every page. 
And that meant that this is like the undo button. It's that important to the whole thing is that if you see a mistake, there should be a button there that you click and then the text of the page that you can edit shows up in an editor. You make your change, you hit submit three steps to making a change. You can't get any simpler than that. And that was blogging. That was basically the formula for blogging. And then with that, everything just started growing like crazy. So that's blogging. Uh, RSS, where that came from was Adam Bosworth, who was a guy at Microsoft at the time. And he was in, in charge of XML at Microsoft. XML was very big at Microsoft, elsewhere in the industry too. This would be like 1998. And he decided that I, if he could get me on board with XML, that that would be all they needed somehow. Or well, I was one of the people he had to get on board. And he just kept hassling me over this thing. And I kept saying, this is crazy. Nobody's ever going to use this shit, you know? And uh, so I did something just to shut him up. And that was basically do an XMLization of my blog, scripting.com. And so I did that in the end of 1997. So there was like the HTML version of the blog that you see in the web. And then there was this other thing that was alongside it, which was the XML version that was machine readable. One was human readable. The other was machine readable. And it just sat there for about a year. And there were a few people did some experiments with it. Really nothing was happening until I started noticing hits on my server from Netscape. And I knew some people at Netscape at the time and I networked my way through and I found out what they were doing. They were inventing this new thing called RSS. And so I found out what, literally what they were doing. Then they announced it and they had this thing called mynetscape.com. And I'm going to try to make this short because this is a long story and a very sort of sad one in a lot of ways because of all the contention and fighting that happened. But their RSS was not as powerful as what I had. But I had learned something in all the dealing I did with Apple, which was that rather than if you have a better thing than they have, it's actually better to punt on your better thing and just use what they have. Because that means that, you know, I have a slogan that says one way of doing something is better than two, no matter how much better the second way is. And even though they came second, theirs was really the first. Because you could tell from my description that I didn't care about this thing. It didn't matter to me. I wasn't promoting it. I didn't think it was important. But them coming along and doing RSS, that was kind of the first version of this stuff. So I deprecated scripting news format, went whole hog in on their format. And then they did something really kind of remarkable on their side is, is that they came out with a new version of RSS. They didn't tell me they were doing this. They basically adopted most of the features I had in my format that they didn't have in theirs. So it was kind of an open negotiation. And they, I later found out that the guy who was in charge of this was a guy named Alex Cohn, and we became friends later. And very much the same kind of thinking, you know. But Netscape was falling apart at the time, guy. That was what was happening. And that's probably why they went ahead and implemented my stuff, because they knew that after that, they never answered the phone again on RSS. They never answered the phone on anything. Later that year or next year or whatever, they got acquired by AOL, and that was the end of Netscape. 
So I was left holding the bag on this RSS thing. And I had built software called myuserland.com. They had mynetscape.com. And it was just this struggle. Everybody in the industry was trying to take it over. I don't like this story very much. It was just not pleasant. But I was having, this is where it actually happened, was I had a meeting with Martin Niesenholz, who was the CEO of the New York Times Digital. And uh, how that dinner came about was kind of an interesting story, but I'm not going to go into that. And I asked him for a license for their XMLization of the New York Times. They had done a masterful job of syndicating the New York Times for all of the news organizations that had licenses. And he gave me a license for free. And so I turned that into, I converted their stuff into RSS. And that ended all the fighting in RSS land. In the next months, basically the entire news industry adopted RSS. They all did it exactly the way the New York Times did it. That ended all the fighting in the tech industry. And RSS was off to the races. It's an amazing story in the sense that it shows that the power, the users have so much power if they just decided to use it. And in this case, it wasn't the New York Times really decided to use it. They just decided to trust me and I was trustworthy. It was the combination of two things. I just put them into a standard, basically, and said, this isn't something I'm going to use in a proprietary way to make my products better. I'm going to use it in my products. But I'm also opening this up to everybody else to use it too. Podcasting was audio blogging. The most simple idea is that I love radio. I think radio is incredible. And I always thought that eventually my blog posts would be audio blog posts. That's what podcasting is. It took four years from having the whole thing technically done, that we had software that worked on both ends, and we had a format that was basically the same format that we use today. That is a really strong standard guy. It's based on RSS. But it took four years after that to actually get it moving as a medium. And try to tell that story in kind of a short, abbreviated version. I just thought everybody would get it right off the bat. I just thought, you know, this is going to snap into place. It makes perfect sense to me what everybody else is going to get it right away. And they didn't. They didn't really understand what I was talking about. I was just sending Grateful Dead songs over the wire, using that as, you know, a proof of concept. I did that and just sat there. Nobody did anything with it. <clears throat> That's not exactly true. There were a few people that were already doing audio blog posts, basically, notably Doug Kay and Steve Gilmore. They both had these things going and they just, they adopted the podcasting format. Didn't really go anywhere. When I finally got to Harvard, though, I met Chris Leiden and Chris was an NPR guy who was also doing a fellowship at Harvard at the time. And I thought, this is interesting. Look who's here, Mr. NPR. And Chris really is very much the proto NPR guy. If you talk to him, you feel like you're having dinner with, with NPR. It's really something. And so he did a series of interviews with people 
in the blogosphere in 2003, 2004. And these were really incredible programs that he did. And they all went out the same way and they were widely listened to, but it did not get a lot of other people to do it. I think that happened when I started podcasting myself. And I took a bunch of road trips across the United States. I was doing that, going back and forth across the United States a few times and podcasting the whole way. And I went to the Democratic Convention in 2004 and I did interviews there. I guess that was shortly after that Adam Curry started. Adam was in, had the initial idea for why this made sense at that particular point in time. This was the first meeting that we had in. This goes back to 2000. He saw me do it, and then he started doing it. And then, I don't know, by September of 2004, there were 20 or 30 people doing, and we needed a name. And so we had a mail list, and I asked people, what should we call this? And a guy named Danny Gregoire said, just call it podcasting. And Adam and I were doing a podcast called Trade Secrets, and on that we discussed it. So let's just go with podcasting. That's it. That that's how podcasting got named. Yeah, that's right. <laughs> well, what did you think? We hired some kind of a market research firm, and they did no. a focus McKinsey. groups and shit. I mean, come on, that wasn't how it worked. <laughs> Everything like that is ad hoc. How did they name the Macintosh guy? What I don't do even think? know. I don't, <laughs> yeah, somebody said, "What are we going to? What are we going to call this thing?" I don't know. What What are some apples? <laughs> So, it could have been called a Fuji. That's CC. That probably would have been more popular. <laughs> <laughs> I have to say, Dave, that you played such a significant role in some very significant technologies and platforms, right? So outlining, blogging, RSS, podcasting. May I go on the record right now as saying that you don't get enough credit for how much you have done. Yeah, I think that, I think it's true. <laughs> I, I have theories about why that is. Why? I just think well, I think there's a limit to how much people can sort of process. It's like you and I, we met back what was it, in eighty three, probably. Yeah. yeah. And it's funny how I know what every one of these years was. It was like eighty three. That was the year I met Guy Kawasaki. We got to you at InfoWorld. <laughs> No, a guy, you were, obviously, you know this, right? You were a pivotal guy in my career. Oh, yeah. Oh, you got me a Mac. Okay. <laughs> Let's start there. Okay. <laughs> How the fuck was I getting a Mac at the end of 1983? Somebody had to believe in me. That's true. And that's what you do. You're a pretty unique guy yourself. Most people that worked at Apple were not very sort of open-minded as to what developers could do. Your point of view was you were hired to make developers, right, go. Yeah. And you took that job seriously. I watched you. First of all, I was a nobody at the time you and I met. Maybe I was becoming, starting, I think we had had one review or something. So maybe I was on my way to getting to be somebody. So maybe you don't get too, you get a lot of points actually for coming to my tiny little office on San Antonio Road. But I once saw you, and this was year, a couple of years later, at some trade show, and there was this guy, this developer, who was lost. He had no idea what he was doing. And I watched you. I was, was standing a few feet away, and 
I don't think anybody else at Apple would have given him the time of day, but you worked with this guy. It's like, I said, man, this guy cares about this. And I don't know what you were thinking. Maybe you were thinking this could be the person who puts Apple over the top, right? That would be the rational thing. That would be, you were being paid to do that, right? But a lot of people don't see it that way. So anyway, people in the, this new outlining world can't process the fact that I know anything about outlining. <laughs> <laughs> because you're too old? <laughs> no, because they know me as the RSS and blogging guy. Oh. There's also another thing, too, is that people, everything is past tense in my reputation. And I think this is true for a lot of other people. People don't even notice it, that the words that they use to describe how they appreciate you is all what you did in the past. So it doesn't open the door for anything that you might do in the future. They're not open to it. Their view of me is, yeah, you're in the past. <laughs> and it makes it hard to do anything in the future. Like how many people who do podcasting have I been able to talk to? And just to ask them about their podcast. When I contacted you, honestly, that is what I was thinking. I, I said, okay, sure, I'll be on your show. But that wasn't really what I had in mind. What I had in mind is you and I talking in a more casual way about your experience in podcasting. Remember that time I came down to Apple in, what was it, 86, I think it was. And we had Think Tank. And we had come up with this thing that could do slideshows. Oh. And you said, print this out for me. Can you print this? That was what you asked. I said, yeah, we can print it. So we printed it. And you took that piece of paper and you drew a box around it and you put some bullets on it. And you said, if you can do that, I can sell thousands of these things. <laughs> That's what you said. <laughs> that was the start of presentations. Yeah, absolutely. Right? And you were yeah. right. You did sell thousands of them. <laughs> I've been getting goosebumps on this one. I mean, it's, <laughs> no, seriously, because that's the way this stuff works, is that users who are paying attention will give you ideas like that. They will have ideas like that. If they're smart and they're paying attention and they're really into the product and they're also thinking expansively about more things they can do, they'll give you ideas like that. May I just point out that it takes two to tango, right? So it took me having that insight and it took you the willingness yeah. and intelligence to recognize that maybe I had an idea that was worth doing. Absolutely. That was an important lesson. A lot of times, I mean, let me go back to the Adam Curry story because I left that part out and it's really important because it's like exactly like that. You know who Adam Curry is? Barely. Okay. Well, he was a big star. He really was. I remember the first time I, I didn't even have the courage to talk to him. He was that big a star. <laughs> I was at a party at an AOL executive's house in outside of D.C. And they had gotten all these people together. And one of them was Adam Curry. And he was the MTV star in the heyday of MTV. He was the star as far as I was concerned. He's the only one that I knew. He's very pretty airhead. That's what I thought, you know, right? Airhead. There's nothing in there. He's just a star, right? And so he had this idea about the, the last yard. It was like, at the time, the internet was very slow. And so 
anybody comes to you and says, well, I know how to make video work on the internet. I know how to make audio work on the internet. In 2000, you go, yes, yeah, sure you do. The problem is, is that it's, it's too slow. I'm going to sit there. I'm going to click on the thing. I'm going to wait an hour before it downloads and it's going to be three seconds and it's going to be this tiny little postage stamp and I'm never going to do it again because it's just such a terrible user experience, right? And he said, and so this is what he wanted to meet with me about. And I said, yeah, well, it's Adam Curry. I'll go meet with him. Sure. You know, and, uh, and he just kept at it. And finally, and he showed me how he had hacked up my code to make it work. And that really got my attention because I was very angry. I said, you can't do that. <laughs> it's like, who are you? To, again, this thing in my head, there's nothing in there, right? And he got me to look at it. And then I realized, wow, this is actually a really good idea. And the lesson that I learned from that is exactly what you just said, is that I'm not so good that I would listen to every user under every circumstance. That was a big, I almost missed that idea, guy. I really did. If he hadn't been so persistent and so passionate about it and willing to put up with my obvious, I mean, it must have been complete. He must have gotten it all the time, right? You know, the airhead thing. You know, oh, he's famous. I'll ask for his autograph, but I don't care what he thinks. But he persisted and, and it was a good idea. And out of that came podcasting. So you're absolutely right. It takes two. And most developers will not listen because I've been on the other side of that thing. Most people won't listen. You tell them I've got this great thing and they go, well, you can't have that great thing. So go away. I've had that. That happens all the time, all the time. Well, to be fair to developers, most things that you hear from people are shit, <laughs> right? I mean, <laughs> oh. maybe you're not listening. Maybe there actually is a germ. Yes. Most, you're absolutely right. Most of it is shit. <laughs> But I'll give you two responses to that. Yeah, one yeah. is one of them is going to be a good idea. Someday it's going to happen. You listen to enough of them, it's going to be worth listening to. Yeah. The other one is list, learn who has the ideas. And then if they come back to you with one after giving you one, you should listen, right? Mm -hmm. You develop a track record with somebody. If you come to me someday and say, Dave, I figured something out about whatever. And it's something that I care about. I'll listen. Why? Because you gave me an idea that got me... Had we not had that idea about more, maybe more would have been a good product anyway. But that the the bullet chart thing and, and the treat, especially the bullet chart thing, I know that made the product guy. It really <laughs> did because outlining is kind of esoteric for most people. They don't really get it. I get it. You get it. A few people get it. You know, maybe two percent of the people. You have to be aware of how you think. To, or open to the idea that a tool could support your thought process. You have to be open to that idea. Most people aren't open to that idea. But a production tool that makes better bullet charts, people get that. They understand it's, that. It's, it, sound, it sounds almost silly, but you know, back then, oh my God, we were printing on acetate. Right. Yeah. That that yeah. was how you made a presentation on an yeah. overhead projector. And that goes back to our friend Sidhu, who made the networking so terribly backward. <laughs> I mean, yeah. Yeah. The, yeah. you know, it's, there's another guy, you know, I, I knocked on his door a million times. You know, help, help, help. I, well, I'm going to do something great with this. It's like when I tried to become a next developer, the message I got back was from our friend Steve Jobs. Yeah. He said, 
Tell him we can't let just anyone develop for this machine. No. <laughs> yeah, no. that's what they said. No. <laughs> yes, that's what they said. No. <laughs> yeah, he had a message for me. Well, they picketed my booth at Softcon in 1984, Guy. <laughs> they did. Guy, uh, not Guy, uh, Jobs sent people over to picket my booth to tell our customer, don't use this, we don't like this product. <laughs> to, to, to use more? Yeah, well, it was Think Tank, right? Think Tank, okay. He didn't like our scroll bars. <laughs> I know it sounds really silly today. Or they didn't look no, at the scroll doesn't. bars. <laughs> you think it doesn't? It's absolutely. Yeah, uh, it's Steve like, Jobs. It's perfect yeah, Steve Jobs, right? That's a perfect Steve Jobs story, yes. The trash can, I, the trash can another, is not black enough. <laughs> I have another good Steve Jobs story. You want to hear it? Yeah. I was, I was outside. I'd gone to lunch with... Uh, can't remember his name. He was the Internet Explorer guy at Microsoft and Hakimovich, Dean Hakimovich. That was his name is probably still his name. And uh, <laughs> as we go outside and there's Steve Jobs and Steve Jobs recognizes Dean Hakimovich. Right. And uh, so he's going to hold court. That's what Steve likes to do. Right. And I'm just standing there and he starts talking about podcasting. Telling him how they have this new thing, podcasting, and that, yeah, you know, Microsoft's probably going to do this, you know, but it won't be anywhere near as good as ours because we because we invented this thing <laughs> and I'm standing right there. <laughs> it's like, well, there's this old joke about Apple, you know, a developer inside Apple sees Steve Jobs in the hallway and he says, hey, Steve, you just had a really great idea. <laughs> <laughs> I don't think I, I never had any love for Steve Jobs. I know that's not nice to say that, but it's not. He was not one of my favorite people. None of them really were. You were. You and Jean Louis Gasset. I love Jean Louis Gasset. Okay. Well, I'm almost afraid to ask you because I think I know what you're going to say, but it seems like Apple and Spotify and Amazon they're now trying to gatekeep podcasting. Yeah. Are they going to ruin podcasting? I don't think so. Maybe they might. It could happen. It's had a really good run, you know. It's it, it it's been around since two thousand four. So what is that? Seventeen years. Seventeen years of constant growth and plenty of big companies trying to own it, and none of them ever actually do. Why is that? I don't know. It's inexplicable to me. It seems one of them should have managed to do it, but the fact that there are three or four of them kind of says that no one of them is actually going to pull it off. There is a very strong standard. Let's put it that way. The RSS feed with an enclosure with, you know, title, link, description, the basic pattern of a podcast feed is so totally well established that is that ever going to go away? Yeah, probably at some point, I suppose. But if it does, it'll have had a really good run and then... Maybe we won't be have podcasting is very gratifying. I mean, you get to discover new things. You learn stuff. Will that go away? I don't know. I'm obviously an author and now I'm a podcaster. I don't think I'll ever write a book again. Of course, I said that 14 times, but <laughs> po podcasting really? to me is so much better. The, the life cycle is so much faster. Hmm. So podcasting, you can turn something around in days, hours if you had to. It is completely flexible. And 
with writing a book, you get one advance and that's it. But with podcasting, you can sell a sponsorship every week. There's so many advantages. And Dave, I know this guest that you're referring to is a guy named Mark Manson. Mm -hmm. And one of the things he said in the interview is that you're on track and you're doing the right thing and you're finding your, your interests and your passions when you love shit sandwiches. And so for me, podcasting is a shit sandwich that I love because I, I will take this raw audio file. It's going to be transcribed by the machine. And then I'm going to go over a line by line. I am going to research all the names that you said because Adam Curry is easy, but some of the other names, Hakonovich or whatever from, yeah, whatever. Nobody knows. I got to go look that up. And then I'm going to uh, make sure that the person who's going to actually do the final transcription has a shot at getting all this right. I will probably spend myself six or seven hours before wow. it gets to the sound designer. And and I tell this to other podcasters and they think I am nuts. They say, well, I, I turn on the recording, I give it to my producer and I never mm. touch it again. And I'm just- You want to know what I do? Do you want to know what I do? Yeah, yeah. <laughs> I talk, I open up my iPhone, yeah. I turn on the uh, voice memo app. Yeah. I talk for a while. I email that to myself. I upload yeah. it to a server. I put it on my blog. Goodbye. That's it. <laughs> That's it. Yeah, we are at the extremes. Yes. I don't yeah. do any production whatsoever. It's kind of almost a religion with me. Actually, most of them I don't actually publish. I, yeah. Most but of them I just talk and it's it, not worth anything. Or it's it, a religion it for me too. Yeah. I, I am the Mr. Miyagi of podcasting. Mr. Sorry. Miyagi in the movies, he would spend hours with his little bonsai tree clipping the little leaves and all that. And I feel like I'm Mr. Miyagi just clipping the little leaves. Why and, do you do all that? Because I have, because I'm OCD, because I want people to listen to my podcast and think, oh my God, I, I can tell you that in an hour recording, but 95% of people do it in a one hour recording, they say, um, uh, mm. right, well, hmm. 250 to 400 times. Wow. Everybody, the most intelligent people in the world do that. And I take almost all of those out. I want people to listen to my guests and say, my God, that is a really remarkable, smart person. Not someone who says, um, 250 times. And you do that <laughs> editing. You actually do that. Yes. That's Mr. Miyagi. Mr. Miyagi prunes his <laughs> own bonsai tree. He doesn't farm it out to, you know, orchard supply. Really? Wow. I'm to think of it. I don't think I heard any of, but I didn't also didn't hear any obvious editing in the podcast that I listen. When you look at Mr. Miyagi's bonsai, it's not obvious where he clipped the leaves and the branches. <laughs> you see, I'd never heard of Mr. Miyagi, to be honest with you. you so you, you never saw the Karate Kid movies? Oh, I might have, yeah, <laughs> okay, but I didn't well, really, I didn't really pay attention. I, okay, when the thing. metaphor breaks down, <laughs> <laughs> I'll go look at it. If you think I should go watch Karate not, Kid, I, <laughs> it doesn't. It's not the kind of thing I would watch. No, no probably yeah. not. With this hindsight about outlining and RSS and podcasting and all this stuff, what's your advice about creating a platform hmm. or an enabling core technology?
I actually really want to tell the story because people have the wrong idea about how you create new stuff. And people say, you're the inventor of podcasting or you're the inventor of blogging or RSS. And it's not like that at all. There's no moment at which in any of these processes where the idea came to me fully formed and that I could tell you what it would look like when I was done with it, that I could even give you the slightest idea of what it would be like when I was done with it. Look at outlining, right? It started out as a programming editor, but there was that moment when my roommate, who was an English major, said, can I use this thing? And that sent me off in a completely different direction that I had ever thought I would go in. I felt like I was done with it at that point before he said that. I had gotten my grade. It was being done. I was way in advance of most grad students. Most grad students would write papers about someone else's research on something like that. It's experimentation. It's like you say, okay, I've got an idea. Let me try it out and see what happens. You, you want to try it out as quickly as possible so that you have to use it yourself. That's another big thing. If you're not using it yourself, you're not going to ever get there. Whatever it is you're doing, one phrase I absolutely hate is when they talk about eating the dog food. You ever hear that term? Dog fooding something. I hate that because it says you have come to the conclusion that your users are dogs <laughs> and they eat dog food. <laughs> and it, you make things that, that you understand, that you love. You don't set out to make a platform. You don't. This is never what, you, what you're trying to do. You see something new. In the case of let's go to the insight uh, that I could publish these ideas that nobody was listening to. That was the insight that led to blogging. That was blogging, basically. All you're doing is saying, oh, this might be interesting. Let's try it out and see what happens. And then learn from it. Watch to see what people do with it. If, they, if it doesn't work, try a variation on it. Try something or give up. Maybe it isn't. Maybe you don't like it. Maybe it isn't interesting anymore. Once you found it, nobody was, else was interested in it. Maybe that was enough to turn you off. But I don't think you set out to make a platform. That isn't what you do. You make a platform out of something that has worked. That's something that became successful. And you make it a platform because that's the honorable thing to do. You don't lock your users in. You don't force them to continue to use your product. They continue to use your products because you make the best product. And that's very naive, by the way, guy. I got, I had the shit kicked out of me because I did that. Why is it that my RSS reader started an industry but didn't participate in it itself? You, you wouldn't believe why that happened. It's because the guy who wrote the first article about uh, RSS left my product out of it. And all the journalists just copy each other. And my product wasn't in the list of products. And at th that time, guy, my product was dominant. Mine was the product that was driving the whole market. I mean, go back to the thing that was pivotal in RSS was the fact that I had the New York Times and nobody else did. The deal they did was with my company. I wasn't contractually obligated to do anything with it. I could have just used it in my own product. 
So maybe creating a platform isn't always the best idea, huh? <laughs> maybe maybe be proprietary around, about it for a while and intend to make it a platform at some point in the future. But you don't necessarily have to actually follow through immediately on it. It may not be a very good practice because the world's full of assholes, man. <laughs> Yeah. You can quote me on that. It's one of my slogans. It's an observation that I've made. It came late to me, guys. <laughs> it really, maybe that's why I made platforms, so many platforms. In my blog, I, I signed a no lock-in pledge. I put up a post the other day, my no lock-in pledge. Why? Because in this new nascent rebooting outlining market, there is a market leader. There's a company that raised $9 million from... The Collison brothers, the guy who's, guys who started Stripe, these guys are like multi-billionaires, right? Mm -hmm. They must like outlining because they gave $9 million to one of these companies based on a, like a $500 million valuation. Believe me, my outliners never got a $500 million valuation. <laughs> but <laughs> I did make, I mean, I did get a lot of Symantec stock for them though. So there's that. But, but they're very much a closed silo. They're not open to letting anybody else have access to their customers. But they have spawned an awful lot of com competition, and all of their competition is open. And they all see their only hope of competing with this company as being the opposite, being no lock-in. And so they're kind of loving me right now, actually, to be honest with you. My no lock-in pledge is resonating. And even though they have absolutely no idea, really, that I had anything to do, they don't even know that there was outlining guy. <laughs> If you look at their, yeah, I know you think it's funny. This is why this is a good time for you and me to talk. It's very good for my ego, my friend. It really is. Because you're, I mean, there are other people that remember it, right? Sure. Yeah. Right. But they're all in their 60s. <laughs> me, you, Peter, and Alice. That's four people uh, that remember it. Well, yeah, but they're like, they're not opinion leaders. <laughs> you might be an opinion leader. Whatever. It doesn't matter. You're good. Talking to you is good for my ego. It is definitely good for my ego because, yeah, you remember. And uh, it's encouraging to me because something similar to this happened. It, this is a sort of a loop that repeats. This is the tech industry is all about loops. It's, we always go round and round and round. And you remember Doug Engelbart? Yeah. Doug Engelbart? Yeah. Okay. So yeah. Doug Engelbart was the first guy who did outlining. And I remember when I really? heard about... Really? Yes. Really. Wow. Doug Engelbart understood outlining. He did a thing called Augment. And Augment was an outliner. And it, it ran. It probably still runs. But, but he was the guy that was keeping it alive. And, uh, and I got to know Doug Engelbart, and, and I would have hired him in an instant to work on my stuff, to help us. So here I am now in Doug Engelbart's position. And, uh-huh, right? So what can I, can I learn? I think he made a mistake. I think he should have worked with me. I really do. Huh. Because, because I had what he didn't have. I had, I had code that ran on the machines people were using at that time. He did not. So he, you didn't even know he was an outlining guy, right? I thought he's the mouse guy. Yeah. Well, that's see, this is the same thing, right? It's the same damn thing. It's it's what you asked me. I don't get enough credit. He didn't get credit for the outlining. And you oh. know, if you had asked Doug Engelbart, what was your most consequential contribution to computers? He would not have said the mouse. Really? Yes. Just like I would not say it's RSS or podcasting or blogging. 
What I would you say? The, I think it's the outliners. Are you kidding? Outliners are amazing. They're amazing tools. And these other things are just natural outgrowths. To say that you could do publishing on a publishing platform, <laughs> come on. All we did was hack at making it easy. Now, maybe nobody else thought that that's something that could be done. It certainly was controversial at the time. In the 90s, when we were iterating over making content management easy, there were all these enterprise companies that were charging hundreds of thousands of dollars for their publishing systems. And I said, yeah, we're going to make this free. This isn't going to cost any money. If it costs anything, it'll be $39. And they might have believed we could do it, but they certainly didn't want it to happen. IBM had a half a billion dollars in revenue from consulting with publishing companies. Now you see why they didn't want RSS to succeed. <laughs> Let me tell you one more story. Okay. Go I got so many stories. I, I, this, <laughs> this was a really great fucking story. Okay. <laughs> so um, I'll try to make it short. But I was once at, I went, I went on a road tour in the South. I think I had just moved to New York and, and I stopped in at a newspaper in Spartanburg, South Carolina. One of the readers of my blog was there. And I'm kind of like you. I mean, you do things like this. You would go hang out. If you knew somebody who was like an avid reader or listener to your podcast and was always giving you ideas and you happened to be nearby where he was, you might go have lunch with him, right? Yep. Yeah? Okay. So I stopped in and he had to go to a meeting. So I, he parked me in his office and I watched on his screen and he had a screensaver that was rolling through the pictures from the AP wire service, the AP photo wire service of mm -hmm. all the news. And I was just transfixed by this thing, sitting there watching the news in the form of these are fantastic photographs, very high resolution of exactly what's happening right now. And unlike what you get on CNN or MSNBC or whatever, which they cover three stories and they just repeat them over and over again. This is the real news. This is, was an amazing thing. I thought, this is unbelievable. I want this, right? So I went, and that night, probably, I wrote a blog post and said, "This I've just been blown away by this thing. This is the most amazing thing I've ever seen. Soon after that, I get a call from a guy at the AP. And this is after I had been successful with RSS and, and blogging, and maybe podcasting had even started up. I don't know. It was somewhere in there. And they said, well, we'll give you a license. You can have all the pictures. And I said, really? They said, yeah, we'll give you a license. And so I got a license and soon all of the AP wire service photos were coming to my server and I was writing a screensaver. Then I went to a conference in Paris and this guy from AFP said, we saw that I was going to try to imitate it in French, but I'm not going to do it. <laughs> he says, oh, we, we saw that you made a deal with AP for this thing. We would like to also do this with you. So I also had the AFP wire photos, right? And so I start publishing it. They didn't say what I could or couldn't do with it. They just said, here, have the photos. So I started publishing it. And nobody believed I had the right to do it. Nobody believed that I was licensed to do this. And I had all these, knocked on all these doors. I saw this, I went to the, uh, what airline was, it might have been Southwest. There's a big new fancy terminal at JFK that had all these huge screens. And I happened to meet the guy who did the systems for that thing and said, boy, do I have an application for you. And he argued, this was at a dinner party in New York. He argued with me about, Honig, you don't have the license for that. <laughs> 
<laughs> and he told everybody what an idiot I was because he, I was saying, I was going, I can't believe this is happening. How does this, why is the world like this? It's like, it's the inverse. Do you ever see that Woody Allen movie where Marshall McLuhan is behind him in line? No. No, no, you didn't see. All right. This is like your bonsai tree. It's yeah, not exactly. We all have our Mr. Miyagi's, yes. <laughs> so anyway, I mean, that's the point. The point is that you can, if they don't, you could be living the most charmed life in the world. And, and at that point, obviously was living a very charmed life. And all I had to do was wish for something and then they would give it to me. Come on. But nobody believed I had it. <laughs> So what's the point if you have all the whatever? <laughs> so I ended up feeling that, and this goes to what Mark Manson, is that his name? Mark yes, Manson? Yes, Mark Manson. Yeah. You, know, you guys were talking about legacies and things like that. And as I was listening to it, I was thinking, boy, do I have something to say about this. So I don't think we should be trying to change the world. I don't think that individuals should do that. I don't think we should have legacies. I think we should just do what pleases us. And if something out of that ends up changing the world, then you accept it. But you don't try to change the world because too many people are doing that. And most of them are wrong. And some of them are conflicting. And most of what people try to do is just plain old self-aggrandizement. And it's not good for the world. None of us really have that picture enough of the that's why billionaires running philanthropies we found out that bill gates he's been positioning himself as this great philanthropist it turns out no he invested in the pfizer vaccine and therefore he has a huge conflict of interest he never told any or he, he told people people knew about it but he never disclosed it and he's running around now saying well no they shouldn't they people shouldn't expect the uh, patents to be given away for free I wonder why, Bill, you feel that way. <laughs> As if having Bill Gates kind of money isn't enough for Bill Gates. Yeah. Come on, Bill. What do you need more money for? Give me a yeah. break. He, by the way, is also, he's exactly my age. We were born the same year. I don't know what year you were born in, but I know what it means to be Bill Gates' age, which means he's starting to think about winding it down, you know? I certainly don't think my, this is why I kind of love that there are these outliner young guys out there, there, because their horizon, I have all this knowledge, all of this experience. I have things that I can give them and I would love to give them to them. What they have that I don't have is they have a 40 year horizon and I don't have it. Yeah. Right. Yeah, it's just a fact. I could be as wealthy as you want. It's just, I can't think 40 years out in the future. It's okay. I've had a good run. <laughs> Okay, so completely switching topics. I want to know what you think about Facebook Oversight Board, Mark Zuckerberg, the whole Mishagas, as we Japanese say. <laughs> I didn't realize that was a Japanese word. It is a Japanese word, yes. <laughs> Look, it's a complicated situation, right? Because I actually think Facebook's really good. Because Facebook isn't just a company, and it isn't just Mark Zuckerberg. It's also two, no, how many billion people? I think it's 2.8 billion users or something like that. It's a huge number of people use it. And they're doing, or I should say, we're doing some amazing things on Facebook. In March of 2019, I moved from Manhattan. I lived in an apartment in midtown Manhattan. Very nice apartment, very nice lifestyle, but I was tired of it. And I wanted to live in the country, so I moved up to... Woodstock, New York, and it was about two hours north of the city, and I didn't know anybody here. 
But there was a private Facebook group for Woodstock, and I started networking, and very quickly, I knew a lot of people here. And I thought that couldn't have happened a few years ago, right? It never would have happened. So you may hate Facebook. There are lots of good reasons to hate Facebook. They refuse to do anything to help the web. That's the thing I hate them for. I don't blame them for what happened with Cambridge Analytica. I think that was just the press being idiots. Before Cambridge Analytica and the Trump campaign, they were boosters of Facebook. They had disclosed all that stuff about the API. They refused to listen to anything that said that this could be abused. They just went right through that. He was like the wonder boy. Like They treated all of Silicon Valley like that. They love money. Journalism loves money, and they love Zuckerberg for that reason. I guess they turned on him because they realized that if this goes much further, they won't have jobs anymore. I don't think they have the slightest bit of objectivity on it, and they don't disclose their conflicts of interest, and they're, they're just out there promoting themselves. So I think there's a lot of hate that should be directed at journalism here. I think they deserve a fair amount of it. To expect Zuckerberg to monitor Facebook and control what people say on it, that's crazy. Can't be done. You know, the journalism acts like there's some answer to this. They don't have any answers. There aren't any answers to it. It's going to have its own problems. I want to know, you, Dave Weiner, how you do your best and deepest thinking. Oh. <sighs> I go for a walk. I go for a bike ride. I get to a stopping point. I trust myself. That may be the biggest part of it, is that I maybe get to a point where I don't have an answer or I feel like I'm stuck and I don't know what I'm going to do. But I think that I'll put it down and I'll come back. And when I come back, I will know what to do. And I almost always do. Because there's a lot of thinking that you do there's, you know, conscious part of who you are, and that's like when you're doing stuff, right? And then there's the subconscious, which is like always working. It's always processing. It's always doing whatever it does. I think you love yourself and you trust yourself. I think you say that, I know Dave and Dave will probably figure this out, so I'll just relax. There you have it. Dave Weiner, gadfly, programmer, writer, inventor, Orly's huge contributor to blogging, podcasting, and RSS. As I said in the introduction, his ideas have touched hundreds of millions of people. So when you listen to this podcast, remember, Dave Weiner had a great role in making it possible. I'm Guy Kawasaki. This is Remarkable People. My thanks to Peg Fitzpatrick and Jeff C., who had a great role in making this podcast possible. Until next time, be well, be safe, mahalo, and aloha. This is Remarkable People.